From Beyond Marketing, it's The 20-Minute Call, a podcast about the dreamers, boundary pushers, rebels, and champions of the skydiving industry. Each episode is a narrative journey highlighted by the highs, lows, and luck that the skydiving industry delivers as told by the most influential people within the sport. If you've ever dreamed of becoming a skydiver, perhaps opening a drop zone, or becoming the next world champion, check out the 20-minute call hosted by me, James LeBarry. My guest today has over 38 years of skydiving experience and is USPA-rated tandem instructor, examiner, AFF instructor. He's a private pilot, has over 10,000 logged jumps, and of those, 5,000 of those are tandems. He's an SNTA uh, instructor examiner and a professional skydiving exhibition rating holder. He's also the DZO of a long-standing and respected drop zone with his wife, Sherry. Please welcome to the podcast, Mark Trapari. Hey, Mark, how are you today? Good, James. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. How are you? I'm great. I'm, I'm Good. so grateful for, for you to join me because you're a rare breed. You're a DZO. And uh, I'd love to get into the story of why you chose this profession. Um, you know, firstly, how long have you been running uh, Skydive Newport? So I started Skydive Newport in 1999, in July of 1999. Okay. And you're not from the New England area, though. I am. I'm from the New England area. I, prior to starting Skydive Newport, I worked at uh, many drop zones around the country, uh, one of which is, was a ranch in New York, and the other one was in... Uh, down in Florida, Skydive Space Center, and a few other drop zones in between, and then uh, decided to open up my own skydiving center in uh, July of 1999. When did you first start skydiving? So I made my first jump in 1985, and that was out in uh, western Massachusetts. It was at Turner's Falls, and the first jump back then was a static line jump, and from that jump there, I knew I was hooked and haven't looked back since. Wow, and so... As I know the story, you went south and started jumping a lot of time at Skydive Space Center? I did. I worked at Skydive Space Center for probably about maybe three or four years. And then after Skydive Space Center, I came up here. So when I started this drop zone in 1999, I had about 15 years' experience doing tandems and AFF uh, at other drop zones, working for other drop zones. And at Skydive Space Center, I was was actually one of the managers and one one of the people that started that drop zone for the owner at that time. So uh, Scott of Space Center, I mean, if you if you started Newport in 99, I mean, I look at Scott of Space Center as, as in Titusville, like there was so much energy happening there during this time with, I know, Brian Erler doing his space shuttle jumps, right. you know, down there. And I know, I think Omar, yeah. Omar. Uh, Al-Hejalan was down there. I yeah. mean, there was just like this free fly energy. Were you part of, of that sure. scene? So Dino Flaherty as well. So the, the, the scene that I was part of was more in the uh, student training end, the tandem end, uh, the AFF end, and also I was part of the marketing management um, uh, uh, end on that at that drop zone as well, as far as and as well as the um, um, the head of the uh, demo team. We had a small demo team. We used to jump into Cocoa Beach during spring break and other events, Florida Marlins and whatnot. So other than doing tandems at AFF there, Mike Forte there was more marketing. Mm-hmm. 
So you're at this very happening drop zone, though, right? Like the energy is is super high. Why did you decide that you would go and start your own thing? So it got to a point where, when I, you know, working in this industry for many years, doing tandems and AFF, I kind of seen, you know, what was being done right, what was being done wrong, and I knew I can do it on my own. So I just decided to look around at different locations, and I found Newport, hit it right. I uh, met with the airport corporation, and um, the rest was history. Opened up in 1999 here. So you were one of those those jumpers to say, I'm going to go open up my own drop zone because I think I can do it better. Is that about right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pretty much. I can open up my own drop zone. I, can, I think I can do it for myself and, um, and move forward for myself opposed to um, working for someone else. More, more like on the entrepreneur side of it all. Right. So, you know, fast forward, I mean, this is 1999, so you're almost been open 25 years at Newport. Yeah. W- you know, what have been some of the challenges that you hadn't seen in, in running a DZ? So when I first started here, I, I didn't have much. Uh, I actually had one tandem rig. Uh, Ted Strong gave me that rig for half price because he knew I was starting a small drop zone. Uh, cash advanced my credit cards to put a down down a down uh, payment on an airplane. Luckily, I had a good credit rating, so I was able to get a loan for for the airplane as well and started doing the TAMs one at a time myself. Uh, didn't have much behind me. Uh, pretty much slept in my car every night, went to the gym to take a shower. Uh, that that first year was pretty tough, uh, that first year. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I knew this place would spark just because of the fact that we're in a coastal community, big tourist area. But it was just a matter of time before it did spark. I thought it would spark a lot faster than what it did. So the first year was was pretty tough. Second year was pretty tough, too. Third and fourth year, it started to spark a little bit more, and um, and so on throughout the years. A lot of people think when they start a business that it's going to be busy right away. Yeah, and, I thought so, you too. Know, we, 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 we hear this story all the time, whether it's, it's becoming a full-time skydiver, is there's always that element of sleeping at the DZ or, as you Right. sleeping in your car like did you feel sure. like man i think i've made a mistake i mean you went from no, security to sleeping in your car no never thought i'd make a mistake because i knew that once the word got out that we were skydiving in newport it would spark and i used to go down there were a lot of bars in newport a lot of restaurants i used to go out at two or three o'clock in the morning when the bars would be getting out passing brochures to all the drunks at the bars i realized that was a mistake because no one was listening to what i was saying uh, then I had the idea of, well, I'm really going to get the word out. So I bought a car. I got a mannequin. I put the mannequin on the roof of the car, head first through the roof of the car, put a jumpsuit on the mannequin, and said, sh- uh, on the side of the car, had all the car was led, it should have called Skydive Newport. And I drove around downtown Newport in the thick of all the tourists. Looked like someone went right through the roof of the car. It stopped everybody in their tracks as I did that. And that really got the word out. Classic guerrilla marketing. Where, where'd you come up with that idea? You know, I just thought it just it just happened happened to come into my head, and it's like, you know what? I'm going to drive someone through the roof of the car with their feet sticking out and drive around town, and that's what I did. Everybody loved it. I thought the cops maybe give me a hard time. No, they're all taking pictures of it. People coming out of restaurants taking pictures of of them next to my car as I'm driving down the street. And because Newport is so heavily trafficked in the summertime, it was all bumper-to-bumper traffic. So you're only traveling like in walking pace, driving down the streets. So a lot of people seen that car. 
Wow. So following that, you, you started getting some traction. Phones started to ring. I did. I did. Yes, I did. And then it got to a point where um, I was doing all the tandems, one at a time in the airplane, one at a time, Cessna 182. And then it got to a point where I was able to get some staff on board, um, hired another hired instructor, and then him and I would do them two at a time because the second year I got a second rig. And then um, got to the point after about maybe four or five years, I uh, was able to hire full-time staff where I can be on the ground running the business. And then at this point here, about about eight years ago, we put our own building up. And we got to the point where we got we starting to get so big that we could not uh, function in the in the lobby of the airport in the FBO of the airport. We could not function in that, so I had to step outside and work out an agreement with the airport corporation to build my own building. And, and that's where we're at at this point. Because you're not in sort of the mainstream of skydiving with not having fun jumpers, I think yep. you're a tandem operation only. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of people don't know the quality of, of maybe your drop zone. I mean, my first comment to you when you came on camera for this interview was, man, your place looks so clean. And I've seen photos where, I mean, your picnic area is beautiful and the landing area is pristine. And I mean, you clearly put a lot of pride in into your drop zone. Yeah. I do. And, and as you had mentioned, we're tandems only. So we do cater to tandems only. So we have this set up for people to come in to make their first jump, their second jump. And we have many people that do many jumps in the course of the season with us or subsequent seasons. So the way we have it set up is to accommodate them where they come in. It's a reservation based business. They come in. Uh, there's no waiting around all day for them to make a tandem jump because many drop zones that have uh, they have all the niches, which is tandem, AFF, fun jumpers, and all the niches in skydiving. There's a lot of stuff going on, and that's great. That, 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 those are great drop zones for sure. But with us, with tandems, because of the fact that we're reservation-based, people get up on time. They're not waiting for the fun jumper load. They're not waiting for the AFF load. It's strictly catered towards the customers that make reservations. And we have our building set up to cater to them. We have our landing area set up catered to them. Uh, we have our spectator area set up catered to them. We get a lot of spectators. Sometimes one one or two people will come out to jump. They'll bring 20 people to spectate. I, I want to give a sense of the realness of owning a DZ. You know, like I think I, I've run a drop zone, but I managed it. I didn't own it. Yeah. And there's a big difference there. What's been your hardest day running a DZ? <sighs> That's a tough one to say. What, what what has been my hardest day? I can say what has been stressful days when there's an aircraft situation, aircraft problem, a maintenance problem, a radio went down, a transponder went down, we have customers waiting. Uh, when I first started this place, as I had mentioned, I had one airplane. I since now have three airplanes um, for the redundancy of the whole thing. But those are probably the most stressful days when the equipment's not working properly. And um, we have people being delayed. I don't, I don't want anybody being delayed here. That's my big thing for sure. Um, so that would probably be it, I would think. As far as um, anything else going on, like injuries or anything like that, knock on wood, we've had one twisted ankle in 25 years here. So we consider ourselves wow. having an impeccable safety record. I almost um, want to say that's an exaggeration, literally one. One twisted ankle in 25 years. That's it. Why? Why? That is so ahead of, of any curve I've seen. Why are you so successful? Well, first off, I keep I keep all the parachutes new. I don't we don't fly any rag can rag canopies. Um, the way the way um, I train all my, my all my uh, instructors is a certain way to land legs up. 
pretty much what everybody what everybody does. Um, we, you know, we're very conservative in winds. We're not jumping in high gusting winds. I think that has a lot to do with it too. We don't push the envelope as as much as maybe some others possibly would. So that would you know mitigate a lot of injuries. And I think it's you know a little bit of luck as well. There's no question about it for sure. Um, mm-hmm. We we know and anybody in this business knows that when you do everything right by the book, it's still dangerous. We know that for sure. And you know. Throughout the country, tandem jumps being done, it's, you know, let's face it, it's like a carnival ride for people. Every, you know, people watch us do tandems. We come in and we land, we tiptoe in and we slide in our butt, and it's all good, and it's all good. But we do know, we don't, we never forget that there's a big danger behind that, and something at any time can go sideways. So, so I'm always thinking of that. Every morning I wake up, and I cross my fingers every morning for 25 years, for sure. So you're, you don't even sound the least bit complacent, like, hey, I've, I've been, I got a great success record you know no not at all not at all. i watch the plane take off every time do you really I watch the plane take off every time i watch every parachute open every time i'm out there catching the canopies every time i'm the dz odds in the trenches i'm catching canopies i'm answering phones i'm cleaning the bathrooms i'm doing it all yo a quick break here to address the drop zone owners listening to the pod if you're a dzo then you know the insanity of taking your passion and making it your business Mm, why'd you do that? Running a DZ is hard. Between the stressors of liability, 30-day payment terms on fuel after four weeks of miserable weather, and angry staff who are convinced they've been skipped in the rotation, you need a tool that helps reduce your stress. Enter Burbel Software. Conceived by a DZO who's been in the trenches just like you, Burble is the most sophisticated manifest and booking software on the planet. Your life as a DZO is hard enough, so don't be that DZO who tries to save a few bucks using software that wasn't built for us. Burble, the must-have drop zone management software for the 182DZ to the multi-turbine monster. Burble. There's a lot of DZOs out there that have been doing it a long time and they get jaded, you know, or it's just they lose the passion for what brought them into being a DZO in the first place. They are not jumping a lot and are kind of tired of, of the stress of the cash flow limitations when your income is tied to weather. Why are you not that way? You or know, are well, you that way? Well, <laughs> yeah, it could, it could be. Sometimes it does get difficult with cash flow for sure. Uh, this se- season in particular, um, I think the economy has affected us. I'm not sure if it's affected the industry um, nationwide, from what I'm hearing, it, it has. So that gets a little bit stressful for sure. Um, as far as me uh, making making the jumps, I don't do tandem jumps anymore. I let all the younger guys do it, one of which is my son. Uh, he's been around the sport with me since he was four years old. And all of our friends remember him as a little kid running around the drop zone when I was doing all the tandems working at the other locations. So we definitely have a vested interest here in not being complacent. Uh, we don't want anybody to get hurt, but when you know when your son's up there jumping all day long, and he'll do he'll do a thousand a thousand plus tandems a season himself. You know, you know, wow. and he's actually surpassing me with with jump numbers and tandem numbers at this point. If you've got someone that's thinking about opening a drop zone, which there are many, you know, people daydreaming about it. What's the reality they need to know? What 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 should they know that they don't know that you didn't know that you've had to learn? 
you know, I knew a lot about jumping and doing doing tandem jumps and AFF jumps. I knew that. I didn't know much about about the airplane end of it all, the maintenance end of it all. That's a big thing. That's a it's a whole different entity in itself, I should say. Uh, maintaining the airplanes, knowing how to train pilots to fly your airplanes properly, because most most people that would start a drop zone, chances are they're going to be starting with the 182, which is the backbone of the skydiving industry. Um, on the rare occasion, someone may start a drop zone with a turbine, but that, you know that's very expensive to start that way. So uh, training a pilot properly to, to, to treat your equipment properly, not to treat it like a rental car, that's a big thing. Pilots that treat the airplanes like rental cars. And eventually that costs a lot of money to maintain that airplane, which takes it away from your bottom line. So that would be the biggest thing that I would uh, make someone aware of. Um, as far as the, the the everyday grind of doing the tandems, I'm assuming they probably would know how to do all that because they're probably doing tandems and they decided to branch out on their own like I did. And also staff, bringing in other staff, other, other instructors. Um, there are certain instructors that we would hire and certain instructors that we would never hire. Um, and that's a whole other topic in itself. Am I right, Mark? You're still jumping strongs, right? I mean, you're, we are. you are, we are. We a strong. Strongs. And I mean, there's not a, you know, right now, UPT has the great market share in tandem. You sure do. Why yeah. have you chosen to stay with strong versus moving over to UPT like others have? So I've been with strong when I got my tandem rating in 1992. And um, it, for, for me, it works very, very well. The biggest argument with people that the reason why they don't want to jump strong is because that canopies open up really fast, and that's true for sure. So we we um, we jump in Icarus's, Icarus canopies in our in our strong tandem rigs, and it's the best of both worlds. Um, we don't get the trapdoor effect when we release the drogue. Um, we're, we're sitting we're sitting we're not sitting head low in free fall, um, and there are many examiners, some that are very prominent. That would uh, that that whole courses that they would train with UPT and Strong, and a lot of these examiners would say if they took their mother on a skydive, they would take a Strong. So, and, and again, it's a little bit of Strong's fault for not marketing properly. There's no question about it. They kind of dropped the ball on that. Um, and many of these new newbies that are coming up, they get in tandem ratings. Um, they don't even know the Strong exists. Everything is UPT. For sure, I helped Brom down in um, Zephyr Hills a couple of years ago do a course. And some of the candidates I was talking to didn't even know there was another system out there. So that's Strong's problem. That's their fault for not marketing it. It's worked for us, the, the Griggs. As I had mentioned a little while ago, we've had one, count them, one twisted ankle in 25 years. So apparently it's working. You know, Mark, one of the reasons why I wanted to, to have you on the podcast is in disclosure to the audience, you and I have had, we did a website for you you know, many years ago, we've got another one going, but I've always found you to be very single-minded in that. And what I mean by that is you are doing things your way. You don't, you're not really sort of prescribing to sort of the way everybody does necessarily their, their drop zones, whether it be like what we've talked about before, having online bookings versus not online bookings, using strong versus UPT, but it works. It's working really well. You, I mean, you're, You are a success story in the industry. One thing that I, I'm also curious about is many times drop zones tend to fail because you've got a person that knows good sky or how you know is a good skydiver but doesn't understand business. Yeah. And yet, and I'm not aware that you have a background in business, but you've created a very successful business. 
Can you talk on that? Sure. So you're right. I, I don't have any uh, formal education background in business. It's all just off the top of my head. And um, yeah, so I could expand on that a little bit. Uh, a lot of it is touch points. And I think one time you had mentioned that years ago, uh, when people drive into your driveway, okay, when they walk into your building, uh, when they use your bathrooms, um, how, how, how clean is everything? It makes a big thing. People walk into this building and they look around and say, wow, this is really nice. It's like, yeah, I know. But they have nothing else to compare it to because this is probably the first skydiving center they've ever went to. So it, it, it's all about, um, I, I, try to, I try to keep a very professional staff here. Uh, and, and, you know, we, we keep the shop talk, what we would call shop talk down. We don't, we're not talking about certain things that we don't want customers to hear about. Uh, for example, if there was a cutaway, we don't look up and say, oh, look at that. They just chopped that canopy. Oh, you see that thing spinning? We don't do any of that stuff. We just simply cut away the canopy, open the reserve, and land, and everybody's fine. And, yeah, the, the instructor will tell, the, tell the, uh, the passenger, the student, that, yeah, that parachute that we just uh, released was a parachute that wasn't working properly, so we have another one. We've used our secondary parachute, and that is it. Nothing's more said about that. So that has a lot to do with it. Uh, the other thing too is um, the way we um, the way we take reservations, and the way we do it. And we're very old school. Uh, we do everything on paper. People call up on the phone to make a reservation, and that's like that's real old school today with everything. I know when I make reservations to to take a trip or do whatever, I'm online doing it all. But with my business, I have them call on the phone to make a reservation. And mainly that's so I can talk to the people or, or, or my son can talk to the people and make sure they have all the proper information so they know what they're getting into before they come out here. Second to that is uh, we're totally against taking deposits for reservations or pay in full for reservations, no refunds. We're totally against that. Um, we are in a tourist area, so there are many times that people would make a reservation and that day comes and they can't jump due to weather. We all know weather is the, weather is the driving force in this industry. So we don't want to be turning around saying, well, sorry, there's no refund. You made a reservation. You have a year to use it. We don't want any of that. We don't want to do any of that stuff. First of all, I don't have the energy to argue with people. And I'm sure there are a lot of arguments going on with other drop zones that say, can I get my money back? I'm only here this week and so on. We don't want any of that stuff. That seems to work to our advantage because people respect that where we're not taking their money up front. They can pay when they get here. Do we get burnt? We certainly do get burnt. And when I get burnt and I know I've turned a lot of people away for those slots and those four people didn't show up, I'm not too happy. But then I turn around and think about it. It's like, you know what? For all, for all, the, other, all the masses of people that we do really good for, okay, it's, it's okay to get burnt for these four people because we do so good for so many other people. So I kind of take it on the chin. And it just seems to work good, and people respect us for that. Your son is a TI. He you is. also work with, your wife also works at the drop zone. She is. She's a, uh, she's a senior rigger. Wow. So how does that, how the dynamics, I mean, like, it's a stressful job. You know, finances are tied to this uncontrollable variable called weather. Yep. Some people not showing up. How, how is it, how do you guys keep work? and your personal lives like separate or does it leak over do you all drive each other crazy how, how does that all work everybody gets along really really well here we got we, you know we have a small operation like you said my son uh, myself my wife uh, she's she's the senior rigger on site uh, she does all the packing um, we have one instructor here eric he's been with us for many many years and a pilot 
And also we have my son's girlfriend helps us out on weekends as well. And also his daughter, my, my granddaughter, she works. It. So it's three generations here working. Uh, my son will jump. I'm on the ground. And my, my granddaughter, Lily, is doing video edits. And it seems to gel very well. Now, as far as you had mentioned the weather constraints and whatnot, you know, we try to make hay while the sun shines. When the weather is good, we try to get the people up. But when the weather's not good, yeah, it is stressful. When, when, you turn, when you're turning away 30 or 40 people in a day because the weather's not good, and you only have so many months to make it in New England. New England is very, very seasonal here. Do you wish you weren't seasonal? Um, no, I like it that way because I take six months off and recharge my batteries. So what do you yep. do in those six months off? So uh, my wife is from Thailand. You know, many times we'll go to Thailand for a couple of months. Last year we went to Thailand a couple of months. Right now we're building a uh, we're building a house in Florida, so we're going to be spending some winters down there as well. Fantastic. Let me tell you, you said that your son is, you know, works with you, and I and I wonder, you know, your your son is amassing a lot of experience. You know, is there is there this this I don't want to say conflict. I'm not looking to have sort of get you on the psychiatry chair here but you know where you've got sort of you're the elder statesman you're the guy that's been around a long time you've got a lot of wisdom and but you know usually when you've got sort of someone younger they're sort of looking going but if maybe we should do it like this like maybe with online reservations is there a push-pull between sort of this younger generation obviously there's a lot more tech versus you know your your wisdom your show your you know your drop zone how does that work so um he's on he's definitely on the same page with the um with the uh uh, call-in reservations the phone reservations for sure he's definitely on the same page however he's smarter than me there's no question about it as far as (laughs) all the tech goes and he he pretty much runs everything i just kind of like steer the ship a little bit but he pretty much runs it all at this point but yeah he's definitely a little sharper than me when it comes to the all the tech thing the computer thing the social media thing and so on you know i I stay off the snap face as much as i could (laughs) mark if you mind me asking how old are you i'm 66 66 a young 66 i I wouldn't have, have, have thought that you were 66 do you want to retire? Do you? Yeah, I do. do. You want, I how, do. how long do you want to keep this going? Yeah, um, I want to retire tomorrow. <laughs> no, just kidding. No, no, I, I, I'm certainly am looking looking for the pathway out. There's no question about it. Yeah, uh, after I'm 38 years in the industry now, and like anybody else in any other industry, after you get to be in 38 years, everybody you know tends to retire at a certain point. You know, yeah, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm I'm eventually looking looking to get out. Uh, hopefully, Chris can take it over. Who would you say have been a mentor for you that you look up to in the sport? That's a good question. Who's Who has been a mentor? There have been many people that I've looked up to in the sport. Uh, starting out with Jack Gregory way back in the day. Uh, Jack Gregory actually taught me to skydive uh, in Florida, back in Florida, at the old Z Hills when it was Phoenix uh, out of a DC-3. Um, and he was um, he was a mentor for sure because I know when I was going through AFF, I looked at, I looked at Jack and I said, you know what? I'm going to do this for a living. I'm going to be a skydiving instructor. And he goes, oh, yeah, great, great. It's like everybody comes out and makes a tandem. It's like, hey, how do I do this? How do I get a job doing this? And so on. He said, oh, yeah, great. And I, I just touched base with him uh, last week, I believe. It was on Facebook. And I said, hey, Jack, I'm still in the skydiving business. And my son, Chris, is now taking over the ship and steering the ship at this point. And he was pretty impressed about that. But there's been others during the course of um, all the 38 years, um, trying to think. Uh, Pete Wolf was another one back in the day when I first started skydiving. Um, after I got my you know, A license, B license, these guys took me under their wing up in Lebanon, Maine. I made a bunch of jumps up in Lebanon, Maine with these guys, and they kept an eye on me. 
um, out at the ranch, Billy and Joe Richards. Shout out to them. They're, you know, I, I learned a lot from Billy and Joe Richards, a lot. Because I remember Billy Richards, uh, he's, a, he, he's a, um, an accomplished man. Uh, in the skydiving industry and helicopters and so on. And I remember watching him clean the bathrooms, dig the ditches, and do anything that needs to be done around the drop zone. And that guy was a very wealthy guy. He didn't have to do that, but he still did that. And I watched him. So you know, that, that kind of sunk into me a little bit. It's like, here's, a, here's an entrepreneur, a DZO, and he has his hands deep in the weeds. And I'll tell you what, every now and again, when someone lands and they got sick, and they, 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 they vomited all over the equipment. I'm the one that elbows deep in the, in the harness cleaning them out in the field. I'm the one still doing that. And every time I do that, I think about Billy Rich. It's like, you know, I remember him digging the ditches at the airport to put the bathrooms in and so on. So, yeah. So, they, so I guess Billy and Joe as well. Joe ran the school there. And, um, and they treated people very, very well, for sure. I did a lot of tandems at the ranch. I was there from 92 to 96 full-time doing tandems. And uh, so I think that was probably one of the better places I've ever been uh, working to see how a drop zone was run properly. And they had a lot of fun jumpers, a lot, a lot of craziness. The New Yorkers are great people. A lot of craziness went on there, too. I was a lot younger, so, you know, I had a lot of fun there outside of tandem as well. Um, so, yeah, I, I would say those, those people that I just had mentioned were probably mentors to me. Hmm. Talk about Ted Strong for a moment, you know. Yeah, know Ted Strong too, for sure. Yeah. How many people listening, you know, a newer generation skydiver, if you know, if a life cycle of, of new of jumpers is usually five to six years uh, of them coming into the sport and leaving, they may not even know about Ted Strong. Yeah, sure. Uh, and I wanted to hone in on something about you mentioned about Ted is he gave you a rig for half the price to get you sort of started. He did. He did. So he knew I was starting to drop zone. I was at skydive space center working at the time and I was uh, on my way up to Newport to start this drop zone. And I went in there and I wanted to buy a rig. And at the time the rigs were like $10,000. They're a lot more now, but they were $10,000. And I think that that was equipped with Cypress as well. He turned around and said, listen, just give me $5,000 for it. I'm going to help you start, start your drop zone. And I was very grateful for that, for sure, because I, you know, I, I had, I had everything out on the line. I had, I didn't know where my next meal was coming from, to be quite honest with you. So he helped me out quite a bit with that. And you know, that day that he passed away, I mean, he was doing what he wanted to do. And everybody says like, when something like that happens, oh, he was doing what he wanted to do. You know, I don't, I don't want to go that way. I don't want to do what I want to do. If I'm going to go, I want to go when the check to the IRS bounces. That's when I want to go. <laughs> <laughs> The thing about the the thing about Ted is, and I, I, you know, I've I've met him a few times, and and you know, had such great respect for him because everybody seems to have a story, like what you mentioned with him helping people. He did. He just seemed like a giant of a man who was so incredibly generous. He was. He was very very generous. Um, I did a lecture with him at PIA many many years ago when I first started the drop zone. He wanted me to talk to a few people about starting a tandem drop zone uh, because it was so new. A tandem-only drop zone back then was very, very new. People would look at us like, oh, you're going to do tandems only, huh? Why can't I jump there? It's tandems only. And it's like, well, that's our business model to start out with. And furthermore, when we when we take uh, these people on first tandems, um, when, they, when they go on to AFF, we refer them to other drop zones. But in any event, getting back to Ted, 
yeah, he was a very, very, very generous, kind person for sure. There's no doubt about that. And um, every time that I went to Strong Enterprises, he always took time out to show me around, to show me the newest and the best and the brightest that was going on at, at the factory. He always took that time out to do that. I'm curious, Mark, with with a newer generation of jumper uh, who want to start uh, a drop zone, I don't know, like uh, the way you started is very scary. If you could do anything different about, you know, when you look over the course of your career, I mean, you had, you've made mistakes. We all make mistakes. Is there any one that really stands out to you that you wish you would have done something different? I mean, you're very successful. I, I don't know if there's anything there for that. Anything that I would have done differently. Um, you know, the way I, I got to honestly say the way I did it, I don't think I would change anything the way I did it. And, and, and a lot of it is, is luck. There's no doubt about it. I'm not a genius by no stretch of the imagination, um, but I'm not stupid either. So just going, going with my gut instinct step by step. And I've also, you know, I've talked to other business owners, um, um, non-skydiving business owners, like a, a friend of mine owns a sailing school in Newport. And I got a lot, a lot of advice from him, too, so he helped me along the way. And the, the biggest thing that I would say that I didn't do, that some people would do, is they would try to um, expand their business too fast. Like if you start out with, for example, start out with one 182. Next thing you know, it's like, well, I, buy, I got to have to buy three or four more, two more airplanes and have three airplanes or have four airplanes uh, right out of the gate. Um, expanding too fast is it, it would be a problem, I would think. So I would advise people not to do that, to start out slow. Um, again, I started out with one parachute system and one airplane and did all the jumps myself. So I, I don't think I would change anything. I'm trying to think of something pops at the top of my head. Uh, that I would change. And um, no, I don't. I don't. I, I wouldn't change anything. Is, you know, Scott Iving tends to take us to destinations that we may not have ever imagined or meeting people that we never thought that we would have. Yeah. Has the sport taken you places that you would never have thought when you started this whole venture at the very beginning of your career? Yeah, it has. It took it took me to Thailand. That's where I met my wife in 2006 on a vacation. I uh, met her in Thailand, and um, she came back here uh, about a year later. Actually, I met her in 2005. She came here in 2006. So, yeah, if it wasn't for skydiving, I probably would have not have made that trip to Thailand. Uh, I probably couldn't put it, probably maybe at that point wouldn't have been able to afford to make that trip to Thailand. And so that kind of changed everything for sure, because when she came here, uh, and you know, and watched what we were doing for a few years before she started getting her getting her feet wet a little bit. Um, once she got her feet wet and became a rigger and started doing all her stuff, it really changed everything immensely. Wouldn't change anything with that. It's getting harder to run a drop zone. It feels like, you know, with everything being so much more expensive, you know, every year we get updates yeah. about, hey, make sure you get your canopy orders in before sort of April usually because things are going up. But, you know, the price of tandems have been incremental in terms of their increase yeah. in price versus everything else that surrounds and supports the sport. How have you been able to manage that? So what's happening is, as we all know, everything is going up in price. Uh, airplane parts, airplane maintenance, fuel, rent. Um, so um, you have to incrementally increase that rate, that tandem rate. But what, what, what I see happening this year is because the economy is down, and, and this is a high-ticket item. Tandems are a high-ticket item, and it's not, something, it's not something that people have to do. 
I mean, they have to buy food, they have to put gas in their car. So they don't have to go out and make a tandem jump and spend 250 or $300 for a tandem jump. So there seems to be less people in the public, in, the, in that pool, I should say, that want to make a tandem jump. So what I see happening now is drop zones are actually dropping their prices to mm. try to get whatever is out there that wants to jump to their location. So everybody's kind of vying for the same group of people, and there's a lot less people doing it now. So that I can see that being a problem. We have it. We dropped our prices maybe by ten dollars, but not not much more. We can't because our expenses. We 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 can't drop our prices too low because our expenses uh, exceed everything. Uh, but we do see in other drop zones that operate. Uh, operate with less expenses than we would in Newport, uh, dropping that prices. So I see that being a little problem. We don't want to race to the bottom like years ago everybody did with Groupon. And I can kind of see that happening a little bit right now. If you hadn't started a drop zone, what do you think you'd be doing? I'd ask you if you wanted fries with that. <laughs> really? I, I don't know. I, who knows what I would have been doing. I, you know, I kind of like being out on my own. Um, I used to install wall-to-wall carpetings and uh, Stuff like that. I don't know what I would be doing. I know I, I, I can tell you though. On that note, uh, skydiving for me has has completely changed my life, if not saved my life. To be quite honest with you. Uh, back in the day when I was when I made my first jump in '85, you know, you're younger, you're kind of going down the wrong path to doing whatever you possibly could be doing at that point. And I just got nudged a little bit when I got into the, when I made that first jump. It just kind of nudged me like nudging an asteroid away from the planet. Just a little bit of a push that sent me down a different trajectory. Um, and here I am now. So if it wasn't for skydiving, I don't know where I would be, to be quite honest with you. It, it might not be good news. I don't know. Um, so I definitely um, I have everything in my life to, to be thankful for with skydiving, for sure. For sure. So skydiving just gave you a little bit more focus gave me more then, focus and it just nudged me in a different direction from going down a path that maybe I wouldn't want to go down for sure. When I mentioned, you know, I knew that you were at Space Center and I, because of all the free fly activity that we heard and the space shuttle jumps and all this sort of energy around, you know, the X Games that was going on with skydiving being part of it during that period. I'm expecting you to tell me that, you know, yeah, I was part of that scene. You're like, no, I'm, I, I wasn't. You've been really more on the tandem instructional side. What I mean, most people burn out so fast after doing tandems. What about instructing and, and doing tandems fueled you, if it did? It did. It fueled me. And I was doing a lot of AFF as well. Uh, when, I, when I was working at Skydive Space Center, when I was working at the ranch, I did a lot of AFF as, as well as tandems. Um, but here it was just as tandems in Newport. Um, but you know what? Uh, what actually fueled me at Space Center, Skydive Space Center, before I came here, is again I was I was part of the marketing team uh, that went out and out in public and promoted uh, skydiving as an industry to the general public out there. So that really um, uh, kept me fueled up about having the passion for bringing people into this sport for sure. Well, Mark, you know a lot of fun jumpers kind of get the sense that DZOs are just raking in cash. And I'm not saying it's not profitable, but they also think that it's so almost glamorous, right? Yeah, yeah. What would you want on behalf of all DZOs for fun jumpers to say, to, to know something that maybe they don't know about running a DZ? It's expensive to, to run a DZ. There's no doubt about it. Um, it's good to have fun jumpers at, at a DZ as well. Um, outside of what we do here, to have a, a drop zone that has fun jumpers, 
those fun jumpers are, 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 are driving the tandem population. They're driving the tandem instructors, I should say. Those fun jumpers do become tandem instructors. So you always have growth from within. You're building from within, opposed to having something like I have. And, and many other people have what I have going on as well, uh, to try to bring instructors from the outside in. So um, that, that's what I would say about that as far as um, uh, to, mentioning to fun jumpers that it is expensive for a, for a DZO to operate um, his DZ. And where the money is coming from is from the tandems and the students. I mean, a fun jump ticket doesn't pay for a whole lot, let's face it. You're paying $30 to get an airplane. It doesn't pay for much. You have to have that tandem population and that AFF population to keep that drop zone afloat, no question about it. Why did you decide not to have fun jumpers? So a couple of reasons. First off, um, it's the agreement that we have with the state of Rhode Island that we're a tandem-only uh, drop zone. Um, and right now, um, they, you know, a couple of years back, they did some construction of this airport, which tightened up our landing area. Our landing area is 200 feet by 200 feet. Wow. In skydiving standards, that's the size of a postage stamp. So as a matter of fact, um, an entry-level tandem instructor would have a very difficult time landing in my landing area. You'd have to have a lot of mm. you have a lot of experience to put the tandem down, especially when there's no wind, because you can overshoot. If you overshoot in three directions, you're hitting buildings, airplanes, or a big wall of, of earth. There's only one direction where there's an overrun. So um, yeah, so if if we had fun jumpers here, people would be hitting things left and right. So we we can never do that. And again, with the agreement that we have with the state of Rhode Island to be a tandem operation only. This podcast is sponsored by Beyond Marketing the digital marketing agency for the skydiving industry. As avid podcast consumers ourselves, we're not fans of ads during a podcast, so we'll spare you the details about why we love building websites and helping businesses show up in Google search results. But just know this, we're passionate about the skydiving industry and how it markets itself. Look us up at dropzone.marketing. Again, that's dropzone.marketing. Mark, I don't know if you've, if you've ever gotten to this stage, but I want to be honest in saying that when I ran a drop zone in my ninth year, I got to the point where I had, you know, been out in the field enough times helping people that were injured or yep. I dealt with a few fatalities through the years that it became difficult for me to watch tandems land. Did it? Okay. Uh, yeah. It, it did. It, it started getting to me where I was not just tandems, really anybody, where I'm almost willing people to, to flare. Right. You know, for those that are flaring late or, right. you know, the tandems that are, that are definitely not necessarily hooking it, but, you know, it's on the line, yeah. uh, you know, in, in terms of generating speed and, and having a smooth landing. So it got to the point where I just felt like, uh, I dealt with so much that it, it was hard for me to work because I'm literally just willing, like, God's sakes, please flare. It doesn't sound like you've ever, you, you, you've ever gotten to that place where I was just sort of, I needed a break. Yeah, I hear what you're saying. No, I haven't got to that place. But like I had mentioned a little while ago, I watch every parachute open. I watch every, I watch, I watch everybody in drogue fall. I watch every parachute open and I'm out in the field for every person that lands. And if I see anything that could be tweakish, like um, maybe the wind's starting to pick up a little bit, and I see as they're setting up a final approach and, and an end cell roll under, we'll, 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 we'll squash it. 
we won't go back up. So I'm, I'm always watching everything for sure. But I haven't gotten to that point uh, that you got to where you're kind of cringing when people come in for a landing. And I can imagine because, you know, let's face it, you know, at, at Fun Jumper drop zones, that uh, drop zones that do everything, you get all the experience levels. You get highly experienced people, and then you get the people right off of AFF and the low experienced people. Then you get the people that have 200 jumps that think they know everything. You know, and that's where the problems lie in respect to, you know, landing, landing issues. Um, mm -hmm. I'm really, really confident in the, uh, in my son, Chris, which, who I taught everything to, I taught him everything I know, and he knows more even than I know. And uh, Eric, I'm very confident in their abilities to land. So I, I have, I have no problem with watching them land all the time. As a matter of fact, we probably have. I would say maybe a 90% stand-up rate, even though we don't train people to stand up on landing by no means. But right at the very end, that last second when, that, when the parachute is shut down, the instructor will tell them to put their feet down and stand right up. About 90% of the times that happens. The other, the other times we're sliding on our butt, for sure. But like I had said earlier, we know when you do everything properly, there still is a lot of danger. When you're flying the airplane properly, there's still a lot of danger. Uh, when you're jumping out of an airplane, until that parachute opens, you're a dead man flying. Or until you get some fabric over your head. I mean, I know we've all lost friends and, and, and folks in the sport, right? You just, it happens through time. But you sound like you've got like this extra respect, right? Even though you have such a clean record, like it almost sounds, I mean, I don't want to even make this sound disrespectful, but it almost sounds like... It's been going so well that complacency could creep in, but yeah. it sounds like you're your like you haven't let it cre creep in. Is there anything in the past or other drop zones where, like you know, they can change on a dime? I, I know that. Yeah, no, we, we we have a lot of respect for you know a lot of respect for what's going on here, and um, you know we keep. We, we try to mitigate any type of situation that could happen. For example, we keep our aircraft uh, maintained emphatically. We're not, we're not flying stuff that we shouldn't be flying. Uh, we keep all our gear maintained emphatically. Um, our staff are current all the time. So that mitigates stuff. But could something still happen? Absolutely, something can still happen. We all know that. We all know, we all, we all know something can happen. Um, again, I wake up every morning, I keep my fingers crossed, and I watch everything, and I, I'm hands-on here. I'm not an absentee drop zone owner. An abs in my view, absentee drop zone owners just doesn't work, period. What are other drop zone owners or DZs that you admire and respect in the, in the industry? I would say the ranch, for sure, getting back to them. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, the, the, you know, a lot of lot of drop zones in New England. I respect very much. So we all know each other. We respect. You know, we're all good friends. Um, but we, you know, we have different business philosophies. No question about it. You know, I think my business philosophy works the best, and they probably think their business philosophy works the best. And that's fine. That's that's how life works. Um, but yeah, I, I would say top top of my mind would be the ranch. No question. What drives you crazy about the sport today? People that are out of shape. People that are out of shape, you know, we have, um, there's a big problem with that. I mean, everybody knows that. And we have, we don't have a monopoly on that. I mean, every DZ, I'm sure they get people, we try to nip it in the bud before they come out with a, you know, with a height to weight BMI chart. So they're not coming in and we don't have to have the difficult conversation why you can't jump, why, why the harness won't fit on you. So uh, yeah, people that are out of shape, it's happening a lot. I mean, when I first started skydiving back in the mid eighties and, you know, going through the late eighties into the nineties, 
it didn't seem like there were that many people that were out of shape. I'm, we're, we're talking young people, you know, people in their 30s, people in their 20s, you know. So that's the biggest, that's one of the biggest things that's a problem. And then we get people that will lie about their weight. We had a woman last week. She said she was um, 5'4", 150 pounds. Okay, we can work with that, you know. Not in perfect shape, but we can work with that. We put her on the scale. She was 203. She was off mm -hmm. by 53 pounds. And they think we're just going to say, oh, she says you're 150 pounds. Oh, we'll go. We'll just take her. No, no, no. We're not going to take you. You know, so that's that's very, very frustrating at times. Or you get the guys mm -hmm. that come in and they'll be like 270 pounds. Like, well, why can't I jump? They're looking down at me because I'm, you know, I'm not that big of a person. I'm kind of a smaller person. Why can't I jump? So I said, well, let me ask you a question. Do you play football? They said, yeah, I played football. I said, well, if I opposed you on, 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 the, on, the, um, on the field and you hit me, what would happen to me? Because if I hit you, I'd probably kill you. I said, and that's why I don't play football. I'm too small. That's the reason why I don't do it. So, you know, skydiving has limitations. And there are weight limitations in skydiving. We're not going to take you at 270 pounds, 250 pounds. We wouldn't have any part of it. Now, there's some drop zones that, that would take bigger people. But the thing is, it's a, lot, a lot of it's about the aircraft as well. Getting out of a twin otter with someone big is a lot easier than getting out of a 182 with someone big. So that has a factor mm -hmm. as well. But then you got to look at the overall, you know, the, the capacities of the system, you know, overloading the system. If someone gets hurt, for example, and again, going back to my mitigation, if someone gets hurt and they find out that you're, you're over-maxing the tandem system, the tandem systems are, are rated for 500 pounds, oh, you got 550, 575 on that gear. A good attorney would tear that apart, and I don't think your waivers would cut. I mean, I'm not an attorney, but I'm, I wouldn't be confident in the waivers covering that when you're blatantly uh, breaking the, uh, uh, the the maximum uh, uh, weight for the gear. Mm -hmm. You know, so uh, things like that, uh, mitigating the the amount of uh, potential injuries. Mark, in all your years of of hosting you know, thousands and thousands of, of tandems. Any any couple that really stand out to you with any unique stories? I have a unique story when I was doing tandems um, at, at mm -hmm. Skydive Space Center. Only one load of the day because the winds were very, very high that day out of a casa late in the day. Uh, the only tandem on the airplane, bunch of fun jumpers. And the plan was to, um, we're going to be up by the, by the pilot in the front of the plane and, um, as the front jumpers get out, we're just going to run right out the tailgate, me and the tandem passengers. Ah, we're going to do that. It's going to be great. This is going to be epic. We're going to run right out. And we did. We <laughs> ran right out. And I looked down in free fall, and we're downwind, big time, downwind from the airport. This is a skydive space center in Florida. And I open up the parachute, and we're backing up about 20 or 30 miles an hour into the intercoastal at dusk. Nowhere to go. So turned downwind because I knew what was out there eight miles away and that happened to be the Kennedy Space Center. So I turned downwind, I hold deep brakes and I fly towards the Kennedy Space Center. But I couldn't see the Kennedy Space Center because it was a lot, layer of scud at about 500 feet but I couldn't see it. So I'm basically flying out to sea with my tandem passenger knowing that the Kennedy Space Center was out there somewhere. Hopefully we'll get there. So during this process, passengers like, okay, you know, we're good. No, no, we're not good. I, I know we're not good. So at that point, I was briefing him for a, um, a water landing, potentially. 
because we may go into the water and, you know, going into the water with a tandem, someone attached to you, we, we know what can happen with that. So to make a long story short, we um, come through the scud and I see the recovery run runway at the Kennedy Space, Space Center. Mind you, the space shuttle just landed that morning. It was on the runway. So we come in and we land and all the, all the uh, security's there with the guns drawn at us. And, and it was like my very first jump again. I was so glad I made it to dry land. And they were saying to me, don't move, don't move. And I turned around and in my excitement, I told them I was here to fix the hatch. They didn't like that too much. <laughs> so they said, how did you get here? I said, well, I gave the story. They gave the story, so the, the head security guard said to me, you know what? That drop zone's been there for over 20 years, and no one has ever landed here. And my daughter jumped there about 15 years ago. And if she was ever to jump there again, I would. I want to make sure she doesn't go with you. I said, really? I said, well, let me, all due respect, sir, if your daughter jumps again, I would advise her to come with me, because the reason why I'm here is because I'm really good at what I do. That's why I'm here talking to you right now. So they detained us for about a half hour. We couldn't call the drop zone. Now the drop zone's thinking that we're drowning somewhere. And they're freaking out because they don't know where we're at. So about a half hour, 45 minutes later, the Kennedy Space Center called the drop. So we had no ID. We don't jump with ID, you know. And um, bring our IDs to the gate. They came in, gave us our IDs, brought us to court for trespassing. Brought us to court, local court in Titusville. Me and the passenger, my passenger, the judge turned around and said, well, why would you go to the Kennedy Space Center? I said, well, I had no place to go. I was downwind, kind of gave him a, uh, you know, a rough eye, a layman's term on why I ended up at the Kennedy Space Center. So he looked at the people from NASA who were sitting there, and he says to them, you know what? If I was his passenger, I'd want him, I'd, I'd want me, him to land me there for sure. I wouldn't want to go in the water. I'd want to go there if I was with him. And they threw their hands up in the air, and they said, well, yeah, and they threw it out of court. The judge said, get out of here. But I have an 8x10 certificate. Uh, um, citation, I should say, for trespassing at NASA through the air. So that was probably the most memorable skydive that I've made. Uh, but to answer your question here, as far as a memorable, um, memorable clients that have come in here, um, uh, I've taken, we've taken Colby Calais, um, pop singer. Mm. I don't know if she's too popular anymore. We've taken her on a skydive. She did a music video coming into Newport and skydiving over Newport. So that was quite memorable I've for sure. I've seen it. Yeah. I've seen it, yeah. Oh, yeah we a take, great we commercial take, we, for Scott of Newport. It sure it is. We've taken Livingston Taylor. Um, James Taylor was dabbling to come out, but he hasn't. Spoke with him a lot about him coming out and skydiving. Um, and just many, many, just many really good people. People out there, for the most part, are really good people. It's that 1% that drives havoc but most of the people the vast majority are very 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 good customers good clients hey mark what are you most proud of probably my son being in the business with me with me yeah mm. for sure yeah because he's he's been around the sport with me since he was four years old so you know brian earl dino flaherty omar all those guys you had mentioned earlier um watched him grow up at the drop zones especially at the ranch went from the ranch he followed me to florida he was with me all the time and he was the kid in the ground taking pictures of these guys coming in for a landing swoop. And he laid down, they swoop right over him. He'd be that kid. You know, so now he's grown up and he's got all these jumps. And now we, 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 tell, we tell all our customers all the time that, you know, that he's my son. He's jumping. A, 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 a couple would come in and they would have their 18-year-old daughter jumping. And um, before we would mention anything about that, 
that family aspect. You know, they're in the air and they're like, well, that's my daughter in the air. I hope they take good care of me. It's like, well, you know what? My son's with your daughter. Oh, really? That makes me feel better. It's like, yeah, so we both have a vested interest here. Yeah, so that, so it works out to our advantage. It's actually pretty cool. So that's probably what I'm most proud of. Great story. I imagine he's yeah. just a natural, yeah? He is. He is. His, his, his camera packages are phenomenal. Phenomenal. He has a long, he has a long arm. He has a long reach. And I mean, if you, if you look at any of the photos that he does, they speak for themselves. They're just phenomenal. No one could compare his, his shots that he does. I, I would, as you know, we've been asking for photography as we're working on a website for you. And uh, of all the hand cam photography we've ever received, of any drop zone that yeah. we've ever worked with in the last 10 and a half years, your son by far has the best. It is no question. so well done. Yeah. There's definitely an art to it. There's an art to it. Yeah, he just doesn't just throw his hand out there and take take photos and videos. He's using the he's using the lighting, and uh, he learned a lot of that from Dino Flaherty and, and Brian Erla. You know, kudos to those mm-hmm. guys. They taught him a lot of stuff because he was doing a lot of the stuff on the ground back when he was a kid, and they taught him about the lighting and you know the framing and you know all the different attributes of getting good photos. Um, so you know, and he t- he took that and ran with it for sure. And his, you can, as you as you had mentioned, you look at his work, you can see that it's next level. Yeah, Mark, you've got my complete respect. Thank you very you much. You know, James. running a drop zone that. is, yeah, running a drop zone is not easy. The fact you've had such an incredible safety record for all these years, and also that you've done it your way, your style, different than most. I've always admired and and sort of reconnecting with you in the last few weeks. I'm like, wow, man, it's it's just consistently the same. So kudos to you. Thank you very Congratulations much. Congratulations on, on an amazing career and a, and a great drop zone. It, it it is phenomenal. Thanks. I hope I hope my son uh, keeps everything up the way it's going. I'm sure he will when it gets passed over to him for the next generation. I have no doubt. Have a great rest of uh, rest of your season. Thanks a lot, James. I appreciate you having me on to talk to you today. Thanks so much for listening to the 20 Minute Call podcast. Please do follow us on your podcast app so you always have the latest episode downloaded and leave a review if you really enjoyed the episode. If you want to contact the team, our email address is info at beyondmarketing.xyz. This episode was edited and engineered by Garnet Znydrick of the YouTube channel Blue Skies Fun Days. Thanks for listening and join us in two weeks for our next episode.